0: Hi I'm Jim Callaway
1: and I'm Sharon Nelson this is the 38th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology.
0: Today our topic is based on a new book from the law practice management section of the American Bar Association Google for Lawyers.
1: And we are thrilled to welcome the authors of this new book our friends and colleagues Mark Rausch and Carol Levitt. Thank you for joining us Mark and Carol.
2: Thanks for inviting us Sharon and Jim. We're glad to be here.
1: We won't tell our listeners too much about Mark and Carol Because they have extremely long and impressive resumes But they're both nationally known authors and speakers They've written The Cyber Sleuth's Guide to the Internet And Find Info Like a Pro Mining the Internet's Publicly Available Resources for Investigative Research A long title, but a great book It was probably a natural evolution to writing Google for Lawyers Which has proven to be a bestseller And I'm very happy to be able to claim to have had the idea for the book Which they so well executed So let's jump right
2: into the subject
1: matter, Jim.
0: Sure. Let's start with a legal question. Do lawyers now have a duty to Google?
2: Well, Jim, I'm going to tell you about a few cases that basically say that lawyers do have a duty to Google. I feel like a law professor. By the way, the cases that I'm going to talk about are all printed in full text in the appendix of the Google for Lawyers book. So I'll just give you a couple of snippets from those cases. You know, as far back as 1995, some judges were recognizing that the information on the Internet was very valuable. We have a Seventh Circuit case, and this case was Whirlpool Financial versus G.N. Holdings, and it was a securities fraud case. And the judge said that the non-disclosure of enacted or pending legislation and any information about industry-wide trends is really not a basis for a securities fraud claim anymore because the information was in the public domain and accessible to the plaintiff. The judge specifically referred to the superhighway and said that as long as the information is there, then this is not going to be a good basis for your securities fraud claim. Then we take a step backwards. Go to 1999, a few years later, And we have a judge in St. Clair versus Johnny's Oyster and Shrimp, a federal district judge out of the Southern District of Texas, who said that he would not admit evidence from the internet into a case because, and this is his words, it's voodoo information. And that really amazed me. Well, then we go a little bit forward into 2005, and we have a few cases where the judges not only infer that lawyers have a duty to google but the judges themselves are actually doing the googling and i'll just give you an example munster versus gross an indiana case in this case the judge admonished the lawyer for not using google to find a so-called missing defendant the lawyer said i googled him and i found two different addresses and phone numbers that you did not find and i also found his mother's obituary which listed numerous relatives, all of whom you could have possibly contacted if you were really trying to find this defendant. And so the, the case was dismissed. Now you know we always have to have a case that says the opposite. And so the last case I'll mention is Fernandez versus Tax Claim Bureau of Northampton County. In this case there was a defendant owned back taxes on a piece of property. And the county decided to Google for his current address. Well, as it turns out, the Google address was incorrect. And the judge said, you know, you should have used the telephone book because in tax sale cases in our state, the statute specifically says you should use a countywide telephone book when you're looking for a missing defendant in a tax sale case. And it turns out that the phone book had the right phone number and Google had the wrong one so i think the bottom line is that you know lawyers really do have to use the internet for due diligence but they also have to remember that not everything's on the web and sometimes they will have to use the telephone book or go to a courthouse or go to the county clerk's office
1: well that's a fascinating line of cases i want to mention because i think you misspoke at one point carol you said the something about the lawyer in that case said that I found those addresses for the defendant. I think you meant the judge. Yes, and I, I, thank you. I didn't mean
2: the judge. <laughs>
1: and and uh, that that really was a fascinating case. That was the first case that we ever cited. As It, it was really kind of addictive, but uh, it certainly did imply a duty to Google. Mark, now that Googling has become a verb and a part of the uh, American Dictionary, what's new in, in Google search?
3: There's actually an awful lot new at Google, Sharon. In the last year or so, Google has instituted hundreds of changes to its search, not only the way it handles search and delivers search results, but also the way it displays them. One of the biggest changes is the left-hand sidebar. Most people who use Google regularly are familiar with the interface. There's a search box, there's two buttons, there's a couple of links up at the top, and that's remained pretty much unchanged over the course of the decade that Google has existed. Just this summer, they instituted... What's really sort of an evolutionary change to the way they display the results, though, in the left-hand side of the results list, they have this sidebar that gives us the ability to slice and dice the tens or hundreds or even millions of results that appear in the main search results list down the center. So now we can look at everything, and we can see the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of results, etc. Or we can click individual sort of narrowing tools that let us zoom in on results just from the images search or the news search or just blog results. We've always had that ability, but now Google gives us an easy way to access them directly from the search results. One of the other things that Google gave us in the sidebar is the ability to access updates. Uh, updates are a not very descriptive label for a very interesting and really evolutionary step in search engine search. Updates are the closest thing that we have now to real time search on the internet. Whereas the majority of search engine results that we get down the center of our results list come from a static but always updated index that Google maintains. The updates are coming from a universe of often updated resources like Twitter, and Facebook, and MySpace, because Google recognizes that they're updated often, and they want to give us access to information in as near real time as possible. And the updates feature gives us that ability. One of the other tools that Google has introduced is Google Instant. Google Instant takes the predictive typing of the search box one step further. So now, in addition to suggesting the most popular search terms for the words or phrases that you're typing into the search box, Google takes it one step further, and it not only displays those suggestions, but also displays the search results for the first suggestion on its list. Google Instant is so new that it's unfortunately not included in the Google for Lawyers book, but we are tracking those kinds of new tools and features that Google introduces on a blog that we're maintaining at netforlawyers.com blog. All of the new features and functions introduced by Google will be discussed in the blog and tagged with the name of the book so that they're easy to find all in one place.
0: Most people are familiar with Google's ability to return general information on a wide array of topics. But how can lawyers, ever conscious of their time, use it to return more specific types of information?
2: Jim, that's a great question. I think the Google homepage looks deceptively simple. There's just a box and you start typing words in. But what we like to tell lawyers at our seminars and also in the Google for Lawyers book is they should click on the advanced search link. When they do that, they'll find a search menu that allows them to limit their search results to very specific types of information. Let me give you an example. You could be doing some research about an expert. And let's say you wanted to see if that expert had ever put uh, a PowerPoint presentation online. Maybe he was at a conference and the conference coordinator put the PowerPoint online or maybe the expert did it himself. So if I go to the advanced search page, I can actually limit my search to a specific type of file result. So I could type in the expert's name and then I could say, just show me his PowerPoint presentations. Mark and I have used this very often when we're trying to get background information on expert witnesses. Sometimes you'll find something in their PowerPoint presentation that might help you uh, discredit them, for instance, or if it's your own expert, it might be really useful for you to have information about what they're saying in public before you start using them as an expert. You can also limit your searches to Word documents or just Excel spreadsheets. Excel spreadsheets are a great way to find all kinds of information that we kind of call orphan documents. A lot of times companies will put something online in an Excel spreadsheet and they don't really mean for other people to see it, for the public to see it. They'll give it a long URL and really it's just meant for some internal use or maybe for some salespeople and they'll give them that link. But Google finds that orphan document and so the way for us to find the orphan documents would be to go to the advanced search page, limit our search to Excel spreadsheets, And then put the name of the company, or actually put the company URL into the search within a site or domain box, and you might get all kinds of interesting information. I know Mark's done this a number of times, and he's come up with documents that include names of company employees, their email addresses, and other contact information. I did one recently for a government national lab and came up with an Excel spreadsheet that included names of people and their email addresses who had attended a conference at this national lab. If we actually go to the company's website and try to search for these documents, we don't find them. There's no link to them on the company's site. But because Google has found them, we can uncover them in this special way. And we go into a lot more detail in the book. So that's just sort sort of some of our examples of how to get specific types of information, and information that you wouldn't even think would be available, but you can dig it up.
1: Well, that sounds like fun. It sounds like detective work, which I think a lot of this book is about. Can you talk some more about the case law research at Google Scholar?
2: Oh, sure, I forgot to mention that, just as far as other kinds of information. Google Scholar is maybe about a year old, and if you use Google Scholar, you can limit your search results to academic articles, theses, books, abstracts, and even court opinions and law review articles. So you would have to go to scholar.google.com to do this search, and I'll just give you a little bit of information about what's at Google Scholar. Now, some of the content at Google Scholar is not free, but the case law is free. What kind of case law is available? Well, U.S. state and appellate Supreme Court cases all the way back to 1950, U.S. federal district court cases, U.S. appellate court cases, tax cases and bankruptcy court cases all the way back to 1923, and U.S. Supreme Court cases back to 1791. Now, when you're doing a Google advanced scholar search you can limit your results to search legal opinions and journals, or you can limit your search to all US federal courts, or you could limit your search to one or more state courts. So I could search all 50 states, I could search six states, just whatever it is that I need. And just real quickly, I know people always wonder, well, can I shepherdize for free at Google Scholar? And no, you can't. They do have a how this document has been cited and a cited by link. Now, these are Google's attempts to link you to cases that have mentioned your case, but there's no editorial treatment. There's no indication that this case has been reversed or overturned. You have to read the case and decide for yourself.
0: Mark, what are some of your favorite hidden Google features?
3: Jim, Google does a great job at hiding a lot of really useful features, and that's you know sort of the impetus behind the Google for Lawyers book is that, there, and as Carol suggested, there's a lot more to Google than meets the eye. People who are familiar with the the Google search interface have probably seen the row of links up at the top of the Google search page, but at the the end of that row, there's a link labeled more. It's actually a drop-down menu, and if we click on that, we get access to all sorts of More useful, specific databases where we can access information like Google Finance or Google Scholar that Carol just talked about or Google Translate. And then down at the bottom of the list, there's a link labeled even more. So uh, unless you have the time to dig behind more and even more and find out what even more is available, the Google book really tries to uh, demystify all of those sort of secret and hidden search tools. One of my favorite uh, is the Google News Archive. A lot of people are probably familiar with the Google News Search, which delivers 30 days of current news from sources around the world. But Google also maintains a searchable archive of news dating from more than 30 days to decades and sometimes hundreds of years into the past. But there's no link to access that archive search. The only way to to access the archive is after you've run a search at news If you look in that left-hand sidebar, one of the options to narrow your results by date is this archive search. It's not very easy to to find. It's not very obvious what it is. One of the other hidden accessible right from the Google search box is the ability to use Google as a glossary. We can define nearly any term, uh, a term of art particularly in an area that we're not familiar with, just by typing in the instruction define. If we type the word define, all in lowercase, and then add a colon, and then the word that we want to define after it, Google will return a list of definitions from a variety of different sources on the web. So now, we don't have to have specialized medical dictionaries or construction term dictionaries, or whatever the specialized dictionaries might be. We don't need to have them on our shelf. We can use Google to define those terms of art very quickly and move on with our reading or other
2: research.
1: Well, I'm going to take us out of order here and probably foul everybody up, but I want to get to one of the questions that we had talked about asking that's toward the end here. And one of our questions that John and I often get in live seminars is about Google from a marketing perspective. Lawyers are always asking, how can I get my firm's website on the first page of Google results? How would you guys answer that one?
3: The best advice I can give anyone is to create a website that's actually about what you do and includes numerous keywords that what might be search terms that people would use when they're looking for a lawyer who does what you do. For example, if you're a family law attorney in Atlanta, Georgia, you're going to want to have a lot of pages on your website to talk about family law issues in Georgia and include those keywords. Include keywords for the cities where you have offices or where you can accept clients. Additionally, Google has advertising services that are available to any website owner Google's AdWords service allows you once you've created an account to select keywords next to which you want your advertisement to appear the Google AdWords service is sort of the essence of free market economy at work because you are going to bid how much you are willing to pay each time someone clicks on that ad and goes to your website now there's no guarantee that they're going to hire you when you get to when they get to your website, but the more you bid, generally the higher your ad will appear on that list. So you can guarantee yourself placement on the first page by outbidding other advertisers for the same keywords. The free market essence comes into play because anyone can create an account and anyone can bid as much as they'd like. Bidding starts at a nickel. but for very, very popular keywords in large markets, like personal injury attorney in Los Angeles or New York, bids for those can be over $75 or $80 per click. Now, Google's not setting that budget. It's the individual lawyers who are advertising who set those budgets. And you can target your ads to only appear in a certain state or a certain city, depending on, on where you live. Google also gives you the ability to set a daily or weekly or monthly budget. So based on how much you bid to click, you can decide how much you're willing to spend. So there's no big surprise at the end of the month when you get your bill.
1: Well, I think, Jim, we might have time for one more quick question and answer. Do you want to pick out your what looks like your favorite from the list we had?
0: Well, sure. I, I wanted to ask a little bit for one of you to talk about Google Voice and the uh, new telephone uh, calling service that Google has.
3: Google Voice is a, a very powerful telephone calling and call management and voicemail management system. It gives well, anyone really, but lawyers in particular, the ability to control and manage the incoming flow of their phone calls very easily. There, there's one attorney in Massachusetts who gave me an example of how she was able to use Google Voice to remain available to her, her clients regardless of the time of day. Google Voice gives you the ability to forward incoming phone calls to multiple phones simultaneously. So when you sign up for a Google Voice account you can select a new Google Voice telephone number and when people call that phone number you can dictate which of your existing phones the call will ring on. This attorney in particular registered her office phone, her home phone and her cell phone by having the caller ID of her Google voice number appear on her cell phone rather than the caller's actual phone number, she could immediately recognize an incoming work call on her cell phone. So she could answer the phone accordingly knowing that it was a business call. She no longer had to maintain a separate personal and business cell phone because now she could identify the calls as they come in. Google voice also gives users very powerful voicemail management technology if someone calls your Google Voice number and they're leaving you a message you can opt to have that message automatically transcribed and sent to you as an email attachment or as a text message or you can opt to have the audio of that voicemail message sent to you as an email attachment it makes it very easy to to access and locate the information that people are leaving you in voicemail messages in new and interesting ways.
2: And Mark, that's that's free, isn't it?
3: Google Voice is completely free.
0: That's really neat. Well, Mark and Carol, you have certainly given the folks a lot of interesting and useful information in this podcast. Congratulations on the early success of your book, and thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology.
0: Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon.
1: Happy trails, cowboy.